reality is an acquired taste. That's a quote from Matthew Perry's memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. Reality is an acquired taste. His book is essentially a 251-page story about his battle with reality and his too often refusal to face it. And of course, the big terrible thing is the addiction that, that ruled his life even all the way to the day he died. We'll say more about that in a few moments. He experienced feelings of anxiety and worry, he writes, when he was just a little boy, maybe three or four years old, just old enough to, to put together complete sentences. It got worse as he moved into his teenage years. He was really afraid that his family didn't love him. He was really afraid he wouldn't have friends. He was really worried that he'd be forgotten and, and left behind by those he cared for the most. And he carried all these around with him when he was 14. And by the way, if you think 14-year-olds don't have feelings like that or they're not that powerful, think back to your old 14-year-old self. Trust me, they're real, every bit as real as any fear you or I may have. When he was 14, he took his first drink. He writes in the book about how wonderful it felt. He said he felt like there was warm honey flowing from his head all the way through his body, down into his toes, literally pushing away the fear, the anxiety, and the worry. He never forgot that feeling. Never. Now, he and his friends drank so much on that day that they end up throwing up all over the backyard. He, forgot, he conveniently forgot about that and never forgot about the feeling how it just made all those worries go away. You don't have to be a horrific addict, though, to avoid reality. There are plenty of folks who get caught up in avoiding reality and without even thinking about it, ironically enough, make the fear and the worry and the anxiety worse, making it almost impossible to experience a sense of contentment or, or peace, what the ancient Hebrews called Shalom. Reality is an acquired taste. One year out of seminary, my brother David needed to sell his Ford Mustang. He was offered a good price. He needed the money quick. Julie and I didn't have a whole lot of money, but we needed a second car, and he was offering a good price, so we went ahead and, and bought it. That year's model of Mustang was the mechanical nightmare. It was terrible, but it was fast. I mean, it was really fast. Did I mention that it's fast? On the third day of ownership, I got pulled over by a police officer for speeding. He came to the window, I handed him my driver's license. He said, Mr. Miles, are you aware that you were speeding? I said, yes, sir. He said, are you aware that you were driving at this speed? I'm not gonna tell you, by the way, what it was. I said, yes, sir. And I said, yeah, may, may I explain something to you? I've, I've never driven a Mustang before. I just brought, bought this for my brother three days ago. It's very fast. It's quick off the acceleration. And I recognize that I was speeding just now, but if you could let me off with a warning, I would really appreciate that greatly. Um, I just finished seminary. I'm working as a pastor down the street, and I was do pulling out every string I possibly could. And if you could just, and the whole time I'm telling this story, he's smiling and nodding his head, just smiling and nodding his head. And I said, so could you, could you let me off with, with a warning? No. He was very clear. 
In California back then, I don't know if they still do this, but back then, if you got a ticket, any kind of a traffic violation, you could go to traffic school, and if you stayed there for the eight hours and completed the course, they would not put the violation on your record. So it was worth it for eight hours on a Saturday to, to go to traffic school. I found myself three weeks later in an eighth grade middle school classroom with a, a, a kind person who was our teacher. He, he started off by doing a little survey, and he asked us, how many of you would say, oh, by the way, I was there with 30 other hardened criminals, just so we're clear. <laughs> I began with a survey, and he said, how many of you would rate yourself as below average driver, above average driver, uh, average driver, or an above average driver? There were 30 of us. 26 of us, including me, raised our hands on above average drivers. Only four raised their hands for average, and no one confessed to being a less than average driver. And he smiled and said, just about every class I teach is full of, of above average drivers like, like you. And by the way, let's be clear, let's face reality. If you're in my classroom on a Saturday for a traffic violation, the chances of you being an above average driver are really very few. Most of you, frankly, probably are less than average drivers. Reality is an acquired taste. It's difficult to face truly who we are because sometimes the initial feeling, the initial reaction is that we become more anxious and more worried. It's to that moment that Jesus' words speak today. These beautiful words from the Gospel of Luke. There's a problem, though, when I hear them read. Sarah did a beautiful job reading them. But the voice I hear in my head is that Jesus voice from the Jesus movies that I, we were forced to watch in Sunday school when I was a little kid. Have some of you seen those movies? Jesus, he, he kind of talks like this. He sounds super spiritual and super holy and super religious. Consider the lilies or, or consider the ravens. Or, aren't, aren't they beautiful? Isn't it wonderful to watch them and how they go? He, he just sounds like somebody who's practicing uh, uh, writing greeting cards or something. It's really not very helpful. And the disciples in these same movies, they sort of stand there and look at him and like robots. They just sort of nod their heads up and down. It's the biblical scholar Tom Long who helped me hear this text in the way it most likely was heard the first time. The Greek verb for consider is a very strong and action-oriented verb. It's more than just take a look at this. It's consider this, study this, pay attention to this. This is important. This matters. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, look at the beauty of creation. Can you see how amazing it is? The flowers that grow and fill, the, fill our, our yards and, and landscapes with color and, and gorgeousness. Look at the, the way the birds fly in the air and the way they, they, they move about almost without effort. It's, isn't it amazing? Jesus would say to us today, consider that for week after week after week, Columbus was a gray beige place that's been transformed by the beauty of the snow into a monument to the glory of God. And what Jesus wants us to take from that is courage, and hope, and strength. Just from the, re, the, the recognition of what's happening by God's hand throughout nature. Because in the same way, God wants to mold you and me into someone full of courage, full of hope, full of beauty. 
so that you can give your best self to the world. You see, what Jesus is saying is, stop worrying about the Iowa caucuses. Don't be so upset about your 401k. And for goodness sakes, don't worry about what your mother-in-law is going to say the next time you have a family dinner. Get over those things. Pay attention to the beauty of the world. And then once you do, you should know that God wants to do the same with you and for you. Barbara Brown Taylor, the great preacher and theologian, says that giving worry and fear control over our lives and how we react in them is idolatrous. That's a fancy word for worshiping another god. She's essentially saying that we make worry and fear and anxiety the gods that we really worship rather than the one that Matthew Perry would call his higher power, the one we might call God or creator or holy one. It's David White, my favorite poet, who says that anxiety is being far away from home. I read that this week and it hit me like a punch in the stomach. It was a gut punch. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've been anxious or worried, filled with fear over things that in the long run turned out to be nothing. Luckily in my, wife, in my life, my wife will speak to me about these moments. Most of the time she catches them and she'll just ask a simple question, where are you right now? Where are you? Because too many times when anxiety is controlling me, I'm far away from my home. I'm far away from my family. I'm far away from my wife. And she's called me to be present back in the moment. Jesus and and Julie too, my wife. Jesus and Julie want us to recognize that by worrying or being overwhelmed by anxiety, we haven't added a single hour to our lives. Instead, all we've done is is amped those things up and made them worse. If we can recognize the beautiful and marvelous person that you've already been created to be, it's it's that discovery that allows us to give our best self in the way that the world needs it. One of my favorite parts in Matthew Perry's book is a section where he says he finally understands the 12-step process. And he's got a great sponsor, and he's been to AA groups before. He's been through rehab a few times at this point in the book. But finally, finally, he's, he's understanding really what's going on. And he talks about this like the fourth or fifth step about moral accountability. And his sponsor's brilliant. His sponsor says, now, make a list of everyone in your life. Write their name down who's hurt you. Just make a list. He came up with 68 names. Can you imagine 68 names? And the sponsor said, next to each of their names, summarize how they hurt you. And he did it. And in that action, he realized how much he had hurt them as well. And by his foolish behavior, his terrible choices, his inability to, to put the addiction aside. And for him, it was revelatory. You see, he had a dangerous combination of both narcissism and a terrible inferiority complex. You put those two together, it's like gasoline and fire. It's a bad match. It can be explosive. It can really ruin a life. What he discovered beyond that, though, was he desired more than anything else to make a difference in whatever small way he could in the world. 
You see, all of his life he believed that if he could become rich and famous, his problems with addictions would go away. If he could just get more money and more fame and, and really be seen and, and loved and, and understood to be popular, he finally did get all those things, but it wasn't enough. Finally, in this moment at least, he's facing the reality of who he is and he recognizes all he wants to do is help somebody else. I, I read a great uh, interview with him in the Huffington Post this last week. It came out after he wrote the book, obviously before he passed away. And he, he said to the, to the interviewer, the same thing I just told you here, all I want to do is help people now. And I make sure that when somebody comes up to me in the, in the airport or at the grocery store or wherever it might be and they say, hey, Matthew, thank you for your book, me too, I'm an alcoholic as well. I'm always, always stop, pause, give them a hug, let them know that they are loved and that I, that I care for them in that, that moment. Sometimes he says, people will come to me and say, no one knows, at least no one's confronted me with it, that I have addiction issues too. I, I need some help. And he, he gives them a name and, a, and a, a place and he gives his own number and says, if, if you don't get help there, you call me. Well, I'm gonna make sure you get some help. And, he, and he's, he's, he, you can almost feel him beaming as he's talking to the, with a smile as he's talking to the interviewer at the way he's making a difference in the world now and how much more that means to him than money and fame. Sadly, we know that those addictions followed him all the way to his grave. The autopsy report confirms that. And yet, I thank God that he had the courage to be as frank and open and honest as he was in his memoir because there are so many people and many of you have talked to me about reading it and how it's been helpful to you. There are so many around the world who are now finding the freedom to face the reality of who they are so that they can give themselves away to whatever the world needs. And I confess, there have been times in my, in my life, especially in my ministry, when I've thought, if I could have a fancy title, if I could get a little bit of fame, boy, wouldn't my life be better? I had a couple moments like that. And the next day, it was nice. But it was fleeting. It was like the mist on the, on the grass on a hot summer morning. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. I've learned, though, along with Matthew Perry, and Jesus, that there's something to be found there in those moments that isn't what we expected. I'm reading a book right now called The Power Pot, The Power Paradox by Dr. Keltner. He's a professor of psychology at the University of California. His words will help us. Let's put them up on the screen. Money, fame, class, and titles are just symbols or opportunities for making a difference. Let me put an underline on that. Say it again. Money, fame, Class and titles are just symbols or opportunities for making a difference. Real power means enhancing the greater good and your feelings of power will direct you to the exact way you are best equipped to do this. For my money, the single person in history who understood this more than anyone else was Jesus. Now I'm admittedly biased about that, but I love Jesus. I love his teaching. I want to live my life in light of his teaching. I fall and stumble all the time, but that is still the goal 
that I want to pursue for the rest of my days. Now, if you come to me later and you say, oh, for me, it's been Gandhi or it's Buddha or Lao Tzu or, or some other great spiritual teacher, God bless you, that's wonderful. I'm not saying Jesus is the only way. No, I'm saying Jesus is the best way for me. And con consider, look, consider Jesus' three great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. What would happen if a community of faith like ours could take those three commandments seriously and put them to action every day in our lives? What would happen? What would it look like? I'll tell you what it would be. The world would change. And that's not preacher hyperbole, that's truth. If there could be a community of faith that would finally take these teachings seriously and put them to practice, and again, I stumble and fall as much as anybody else, but if we could finally find a moment when they're at work in our lives, the world could change. When does it begin? Now. Where? Here. It begins when you and I recognize we already have a God-given gift to be who God calls us to be. Together we can. Amen.